Well, happy Resurrection Day. He is risen. risen hey, we got a bunch of liturgical people. I like that. Amen. That's great. No, truly. In fact, uh, the, the, the Latin phrase says, truly, he is risen. And uh, that's, the, that's what we want to talk about this morning, obviously, about Easter, about the resurrection of Jesus. And, and we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 primarily this morning. If you want to turn your Bibles there, I also uh, will have that on the screen for us, and I will read that in just a moment. But I want to make this statement to you this morning that Easter is about hope. And not mere wish fulfillment, but a certainty of something that happens in the resurrection. There is a shortage of hope in our present day. And hope is, is the passion that we have in our hearts for life. It is the inextinguishable flame that, uh, that gives hunger for relationship, for meaning, for life. Hope is, is that uh, thing deep inside of us that, that enables us to move on and the ability to go forward in our lives. And yet, there is an increasing sense of hopelessness that is abounding in our culture. And I want us to encourage us this morning, I want us to be reminded that there is a hope that we can set our complete and total trust in that will actually change the way that we can live this morning together. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice. Father, as we unpack these few words this morning, we need the power of the Spirit to impress upon us, not just the meaning, but the significance of these words that Peter has written for us. God, may we be people who abound in hope, in a culture in which hope is dissipating, because we want to be a people that give witness to a new world, hope of resurrection. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Easter is all about hope. For at least two centuries, last two and a half centuries, the Western culture that we find ourselves has been animated by this powerful idea that we would continually progress more and more and more. That the human race was inevitably moving and moving towards a world of greater safety, greater prosperity, greater freedom. In short, there is just this overall belief that every generation of human beings would experience a better world than the previous generation. In fact, you can look at studies that they did about 70, 50, well, probably about 50 to 70 years ago now, where it was overwhelmingly 80% of parents believed that the next generation of their kids would have a greater life than we did. 
In fact, how many times you heard that idea throughout our American story that we want to leave the world a better place for our kids. We would do everything for our kids. We want our kids to have a better life than we did, right? And that's not wrong. But where did that come from? Just this idea of Western culture that we are continually getting more and more advanced. That science would free us from the superstitions of the past and to be a better future. But if you look at the uh, 20th century, World War I came, World War II came, Vietnam came, Korea came, Iraq came, and guess what happened to all of that hope? It began to be eroding in our culture where the hope began to go down. And, and what has been happening in the last 20 years is that these, been, these people have been trying to revive this hope. In fact, one atheist has written a bestseller. I have this on the screen for you. His name is Noah Harari. has written a book called Homo Deus, which is the Latin meaning God is, or man is God. And he wrote this. He says, at the dawn of the third millennium, so 2000, humanity wakes up to an amazing realization. Most people rarely think about it, but in the last few decades, we have managed to reign in famine, plague, and war. Of course, these problems have not been completely solved, but they've been transformed from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. We don't need to pray to any god or saint to rescue us from them. We know quite well what needs to be done in order to prevent famine, plague, and war, and we usually succeed in doing it. What is he saying in that quote? That if we wake up and just begin to look at the history of the world, we are actually getting better and better and better. We can deal with all these problems better today than we did in the past, and there should be, we should be abounding in hope in this reality. But I don't know that he is necessarily capturing the spirit of our age. Interestingly, from 1988 to 2008, that, that time when the hope began to get revived, people like him writing and thinking through this, the number of people in America who took antidepressants rose 400% in that decade. To right now, one in six Americans take some sort of psychiatric drug. And I've just been doing some research, but there's been a 34% increase in medication since the pandemic. I'm not against medicine. In fact, if you need medicine, I want you to take it. That's not my point here. You understand that? My point is, can you see the need in our culture of an ever-escalating, deep hopelessness? There's a growing pessimism about the future of our children. As, as long ago, about 10 years ago, there's another poll that said that we are under 50% of parents who believe that their parent, kids are going to have a better life than they did. This loss of hope has been fueled by all sorts of things. But let me just ask you, what are things that have, in our culture that have brought on and bred this deep hopelessness? What is it in our culture that we are a people that are growing in despair? What is going on in our culture that's causing that? You guys got any ideas? Am I, am I out on a limb here? Are you all like, no, I think the world's great? Okay. Hopefully I'm not out of touch with reality. But what's going on with our culture that's causing all this despair? Social media, okay? Yes, and what about social media? 
The what? Okay, the growing polarization of what the social media platforms are doing to us as a people. So there's no longer a common core of what we believe is common good that we're working around. In fact, that common goal of what we want for humanity is growing further and further apart, which is causing more and more fighting and disunity. Great. What else about social media? It only shows what? Well, amen. No scale of reality. Mm -hmm. Say again. Disembodied. Disembodied. Yes. You can't. Yeah. Very good. Too much politics in it. Yeah. Social media is, it's interesting, like, these people in the Western culture believe that technology and science would actually save us, right? And now I can be on a phone which I did this week. I was talking with a pastor in Seattle, and I was talking with six pastors in Sierra Leone, West Africa, and I'm kind of right here in the middle in, um, in Chesapeake. We're all on a phone doing, praying, and talking about 1 Corinthians. Yeah, isn't that amazing? But that technology is also destroying us. The very thing we thought would save us is actually the thing that is dividing us and producing this, this despair. This has nothing to do with climate change, the never-ending possibilities of international terrorism, the pandemics that are going on in our, in our world. And all of this leads to what I want to write to you, a secular writer who is responding to like Harari and people who have written like him. He makes this point. He's actually not a Christian. But he says this, the progress that has been demonstrated in these books, he's saying, Cannot identify, though, why there is such profound discontent, depression, drug abuse, despair, addiction, and loneliness in the most advanced liberal societies. Did you catch that? He's like, sure, we can send food anywhere in the world and make people have food and not have um, hunger. But in these Western liberal advanced societies, you can't explain why there is all of this despair. And he says, as we have slowly and surely attained more and more progress, we've lost something that undergirds all of it, meaning, cohesion, and a different, deeper kind of happiness than the satiation of all of our earthly needs. Isn't that amazing? That's a secular writer. Saying that for all of the advances and all the hope that we thought we would have, there's still something deep, deep down that we can't explain why it is still there. And we live in this age. You and I are a part of it. And I want to ask this question. Can you feel that spirit of the age in your hearts? I mean, we live in this culture, and just to say that it doesn't bother me, it doesn't affect me, I want to say you don't understand how life works. It does affect you. It does influence you. Some of us will feel it more than others, to be sure. But we are a part of the world that we find ourselves in, and it influences us to some degree. Some of us will suppress it and deny it, and others let it rule our lives. But we live in a day where we deny the hopelessness, or we live in it. I'm often fearful for the world that my kids are inheriting. 
I often look at our society and our nation and our school systems and all the things in my own personal life and I, and I become hopeless. This isn't just attacking us. The mental health of our teens and our kids in schools are desperately growing as well. You know, I was talking with some teens just this past week, and they're like, I don't even want to have kids. Why would I want to have a kid and bring him into this world? This is a teenager. There is a hope, though, to battle this anxiousness. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that there is actually a living hope that is attainable through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is a hope that is enduring. There is a hope that is true. See, I don't know if one of the things that God has done in my life is Easter in the last five years has become more and more of an enriching time. I don't want to call it a holiday, but I'm calling it a holiday. If that offended you, I'm sorry. But the enrichment of what Easter actually means since the death of Shelley has actually become more and more real in my life. The hope that we actually have is true, it's living, it's enduring. And this hope that you and I have is not what I want to call mere wish fulfillment, as in, I hope I get a new job, and that will give me some more money, and that more money will give me more opportunities, and more opportunities give me more meaning. It's not, I hope I win the bracket challenge. I'm down by one point. Hope is something you set your sights on that allows you to move forward through your life with joy and, and, and contentment. And it breeds excitement to keep going. The church that Peter is writing to, you read the rest of the letter, and they're going through intense, intense trials and sufferings. Far beyond anything you and I are experiencing today presently. And it is this living hope that is what is fueling these persecuted Christians who are under great extreme trial with the excitement of what is head that is fueling them to actually be the people God has called them to be. The problem is that too many times in our lives, especially as we grow older, the things we set our hopes on did not work out for us. And so the more that we offer our hope into things and it doesn't work out for us, the more and more cynical we become, right? To the point where you live like me, have no expectations and life is great. Just wake up and plan your day and nothing can go wrong. When you start planning, then things go wrong. See, the biblical idea, this Greek word elpida, is translated hope. But in the Greek, it has this more idea of like a profound certainty. Such that biblical hope on the screen is a profound certainty about the future that gives meaning and hope to the presence. See, there's something that can actually fuel you, that you look forward to, that can actually motivate you to have hope to keep going. And all of this hope centers on the explosive events of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
This is what Christianity offers to you. This is what Christianity offers to the world that has lost hope. Something they can look forward to with absolute certainty that is so unbelievable, that is so profound, that is so amazing, that can actually continue to fuel you in the present in the midst of a hopeless world. As we'll see in a few weeks, all of this anxiety is fueled by fear. Fear. And I want to just make this point. This is going off script here. Sorry. Will you turn to Mark chapter 16, if you want? If you read uh, Matthew, Luke, and John's account of the resurrection, they all end with uh, what I'm going to call some sort of like gospel proclamation. Jesus has risen, the, the, the disciples are amazed, they're joyful, they're you know, so ecstatic at what has happened. But do you know what the very last word of Mark's gospel is? Fear. Look at Mark chapter 16 and verse 8. This is the, uh, the women who went to the tomb. And in verse 8, trembling and bewildered, The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid the end. Do you know what was happening in these women's lives? Fear at a certain event had caused them to just start running. Okay? How many of you have had things in your life that you have come to an event where you've seen something and you've just fled? Maybe mentally, maybe physically, maybe emotionally, but you come to an event and you're just so fearful of that event, you just flee. This is how Mark ends his gospel. Isn't that crazy? That the resurrection of Jesus Christ produced fear? As we look at the other gospel accounts, what calmed the fear of those women? When they saw Jesus. When they saw the resurrection of Jesus, that released them from their fear and ushered in this great hope. Easter is all about hope. But number two, Easter is all about hope. But what is the content of that hope? What is it that is certain about the hope of the resurrection of Jesus? What is it actually offering? I want to say this, that Easter is about hope in a coming new and restored World. Look in 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 4. Peter goes on in this opening paragraph here to say this. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. What is the content of this resurrection, of this hope? The hope that we have is our inheritance. And notice how he describes this hope, this inheritance of our hope. It is imperishable. What I want to say about that is that this is not a hope that can go die on a hill. This is not a hope that you think you can just lay over there and let it die. This hope will never die. It cannot perish. Number two, it's undefiled. This hope cannot be tainted. You ever... I don't know about you, but do you like mixing foods together? 
like when I was a kid, like they'd always tell me, don't put, they'd be like, I put onions in, like I don't want it. Well, you can't even taste it. You ever heard that? I'm like, well, why'd you put it in there? If you can't taste it, don't put it in there. Make me feel better. But when you put onions in food, it taints it, right? Maybe, okay? <laughs> There's lots of tainting in foods that people should never do, I promise you. But the idea of this inheritance is that it's beautiful and it's amazing and nothing can actually taint it. Nothing can change it. It is so enamored with, gr- with grandeur and so magnanimous that nothing, even onions, can ruin And why can this hope never go die in a hill? And why can this hope never be tainted? Because where is it kept? It's kept in the heavens, which maybe reminds you of Matthew chapter 6. Store your treasures where? In heaven. Why? Because moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. The very fact that this inheritance is kept in the heavens where nothing can taint it, nothing can steal it, nothing can take it away from you fuels the hope of the Christian that through the resurrection of Jesus we have an inheritance. Maybe we should think a little bit more about this inheritance in the sense of this. If I were to ask most people, what is the inheritance that Jesus offers us, what would the answer be? His presence. Good. What else is the inheritance that Jesus offers us? Salvation. Heaven. Place in the kingdom. Good. Eternal life. These are all part of our inheritance. But notice something very significant about this inheritance. It is kept where? In heaven. But for how long? Okay? Notice the rest of the passage. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, parentheses, who through faith are shielded by God's power until... This this inheritance is kept up there with Jesus. He's protecting it. He's ensuring nothing is changing it. Nothing is tainting it. And it is yours. And it is, we'll see in just a minute, you cannot lose it. And it's there until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. What am I saying? I'm saying your inheritance is kept in heaven, but only for a time. And then Jesus comes back. He's going to do what? Grant you that inheritance. That inheritance is a physical new world in which God fully dwells with his people. This new birth into God's new world gives us certainty about our future inheritance that Jesus is going to bring it to us. I don't know if you ever had to wait for a present. Someone promised you something was coming. Like, yeah, I can just remember when I bought my kids an Xbox. I promised them it was coming. They were like, "Uh uh-huh, right. (laughs) You know why? Because I'm not very good at keeping all my promises to my kids. 
but there's something about this expectation of something beautiful that someone's bringing to you that you can't wait for it to be brought. And if Jesus himself is the one who's bringing you this inheritance, when he comes back to this earth, it should excite us that one day there is a new restored world that Jesus is giving us as an inheritance. When you look in the Old Testament and you understand inheritance... One of the primary means of inheritance when Abraham passed his inheritance on to Isaac and so forth all the way down, when parents, dads would pass on their inheritance to their oldest sons, you know what the very first piece of inheritance that was offered to them? Land. When Peter tells these people there's an inheritance coming, he's saying there is a new land coming. There's a new earth coming. And so Peter is reminding us that Easter is all about hope in a new coming restored world, which is our inheritance. But then number three, in this restored new world that is our inheritance, is filled with love and life. This last phrase that Peter goes on to talk about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, that, that phrase is just crazy. When is salvation coming? When is salvation coming? The last time. What's the last time? When Jesus comes, right? This is when all the world is actually going to be completely saved. This salvation is going to free us. It's going to actually save us. It's going to keep our bodies from ever experiencing sickness or decay or disease or death ever again. This salvation is actually going to free our emotions so that we will never have anxiety or fear or worry or anger again. And this salvation that is coming is going to then actually breed within out of us relationships of love and of life. See, in this day, when the salvation is coming, God's love is going to flood the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that love will permeate the entire creation such that every person will not only experience the full love of God, but will radiate that love to everyone. And think of this new world that is actually coming. Not only was it this, that I will never harm do evil or do violence to anyone ever again. How many of you are sick of hurting people you love? How many of you are sick of being on the other end of people you love hurting you? See, what we all deeply long for is to love fully and freely to others and to receive love fully and freely from others. And this is what God is coming to save us for. See, God is saving us from ourselves. God is saving us from hell. God is saving us from our sin. God is saving us from the devil. But not only is he saving us from something, he's saving us to something. And he's saving us to a world where everything you've always wanted will actually be true. And I promise you, what you really want is not the biggest house and the nicest car. What you really want deep down is meaning, 
relationship and to have people who know you and to be known. I was talking with Jen about this yesterday. I said, isn't it just weird? Like, everything we want is so hard to believe could actually come true. Do you, like, do you understand that, 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 that clash? That deep desire for everything inside of you that is sad to come untrue? Everything that is deep inside of you that is filled with evil and you're so sick of dealing with and feeling all that hate and evil and harm from others, you just want that gone. But isn't it hard to believe that one day that will actually be true? Church, there's a salvation that's coming in the last day. That'll be a day of love, a day of life. A day where you will actually experience what, Pete, what Paul saw, calls life that is truly life. What is Easter? It's a day of hope. Of a future inheritance of a new world where God is going to come and dwell with us so that we can experience his love and his life and actually be filled and be able to have relationship and love with everyone who follows Jesus. So I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you're having a rough go of it. You're not feeling very hopeful. Maybe your job is not what you want it to be. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe your kid is rebelling. Maybe you've had friends stab you in the back. In all of these times, we tend to lose hope about the prospect of the future. But the hope of resurrection of of Jesus Christ from the dead demands that we view things from a certain angle. The resurrection demands that we have belief and faith of a hope that is coming, that is ours. And that hope, when you put your eyes on that prize, on that inheritance that comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ will fuel you to move forward. Or, as on the last slide, C.S. Lewis says, there are far better things ahead than any we leave behind. Father, thank you for a few minutes to think through these powerful words from Peter about our hope. And may we be like the women this morning who may be walking in fear, running in fear, turn our eyes to the living hope, to the living, resurrected Lord of the worlds, knowing that one day we will receive our inheritance of our salvation in a new world where you will dwell with us. And because of that certainty that we have, may we be people who abound in that hope today that we could actually, in a sense, stand out, not just for the sake of standing out, but to show the reality of what Jesus has done. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.